I'm McKinney Smith. After going through a divorce, my sister passing away, experiencing narcissistic abuse, and some significant health scares, I realized through sharing my story that I wasn't alone in my suffering. Suffering, subjective distress generated by the experience of being out of balance. In a deep dive to holistically heal mind, body, and soul is where I discovered peace, clarity, and connection. It is impossible to be truly wise without some real-life hardship, and we cannot develop post-traumatic wisdom without making it through, and most importantly, through it together. Social connection builds resilience, and resilience helps create post-traumatic wisdom, and that wisdom leads to hope. Hope for you and others witnessing and participating in your healing, and hope for your community. A healthy community is a healing community, and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. Thank you for joining us on the Heal Her podcast, H-E-A-L, Honor, Elevate, and Love Her podcast formerly known as the Iwaka My Stilettos podcast, the top 1.5% most popular show globally, where we have conversations with extraordinary women on their journey towards wholeness and harmony. And since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. As a certified mindset coach guiding women towards peace, clarity, and connection within, supporting the direction of the system toward wholeness, my goal here is to help you thrive. Catherine Nickel is a content creator, ghostwriter, author, and mindful media founder. She specializes in helping CEOs, entrepreneurs, and influencers create copy that engages and converts. Her passion for storytelling and a desire to help people amplify their voices allowed her to walk away from 15 years in social work to pursue her dream of writing. Catherine has written more than a dozen books, thousands of blogs, emails, and social media content for CEOs, entrepreneurs, and influencers globally. And her work has appeared in Forbes, Huffington Post, Yahoo, Authority Magazine, Thrive Global, and much, much more. So please welcome to the show, Catherine. Wow, thank you. <laughs> you said wow, like you know who I was describing just now. <laughs> I know. I I, lo- I love when it's read by someone else. It sounds so much more impactful. <laughs> <laughs> It's all you, girls, all you. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for agreeing to come on and share your story with us. I know that as a storyteller, you get to, you know, tell other people's stories and tell stories about your clients. And, you know, I pay attention to your content online. So I'm just grateful that you are here today to share your story and the lessons that you've learned. Thank you. Stories are my jam. (laughs) Okay, so I want to start with where you were before I get to where you are presently. And before I get into like your social work background, let's start at the very, very, very beginning. Because it says a lot about who we become or who we should have become based on our truer selves. So I would love to know... What did you want to be when you were a little girl? And what were you like as a teenager? <laughs> well, <laughs> when I was a little girl, to be honest, my I wanted to be a marine biologist. And I have no idea why, because I don't like science. 
um, which probably would have been helpful to like science if that's what I wanted to do. But I was just really fascinated. Maybe it was free willy that made me fascinated in the whole marine world life, not mm-hmm. marine world like we know it here in Ontario because that's kind of wild. But, you know, just doing that. And I knew people who were much older than me, not family, but adult friends um, of my family who had studied out in Nova Scotia and things like that. So it was really intriguing to me. And then (laughs) things change. (laughs) And, um, you know, life as a teenager, and I have to say, you know, I think it's important, which I, you know, tell a lot of my clients is that, you know, not everyone needs this like rags to riches story. You know, not all of us come from more challenging backgrounds. Like I grew up in a very middle-class household. Both of my parents work. They're still married. They just celebrated 40-something years. So I wasn't necessarily that quote-unquote poster child to find themselves pregnant at 15. Right. So super rebellious leading up to that, was out of school, just like all of the things. And I can't even necessarily tell you why that is. I think it was just... I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's some work <laughs> I need to unpack somewhere. But <laughs> and when I found out that I was pregnant with my son, who's now almost twenty-five, it was like, what the hell is happening? Mm. And you know, unfortunately, I guess it's fortunate in some sense. But um, because I was fifteen, and because I found out I was pregnant at the hospital, um, they had to contact Children's Services. So that was like an interesting journey on its own and probably what lended to the fact of me getting into social work, which I know I'm jumping ahead some years there, Mm -hmm. but I had the most amazing caseworker and so much so I tried to reach out to her several years later and she had already left the field, which isn't uncommon with social work, but she just believed in me. You know, she worked with me the whole time I was pregnant, took me to my appointments um, you know, really helped me navigate living at, you know, Rosalie Hall, which is here in Toronto and home for pregnant teenagers, because that opened up like a, <laughs> a whole new can of worms. And, mm-hmm. you know, it really caused me also to feel really grateful for the parents that I did have, even though I promise you they were not happy <laughs> when we found <laughs> out. My mom, oh gosh, my mom, she used to post uh, when I was still living at home before I moved to Rosalie Hall, she used to post these statistics on my bedroom door and as awful as that sounds knowing my mom's heart and intention it wasn't and mm-hmm. it was all about like how many teen moms don't graduate you know it's just all these different articles of statistics and it sort of I don't know just instilled in me that I'm not going to be what she's posting on my door mm-hmm. um, maybe it was like reverse affirmations for her <laughs> because it wasn't because <laughs> it wasn't done with ill intention right it was just like I have you know dreams for you and although they aren't you know, my dreams don't need to be her dreams. I also wanted to make them proud, which I probably only realized in my adult life. Mm-hmm. Because at the time I was like, oh no, I'm going to prove you wrong, you know? And I ended up getting back into school. My son was born. Um, he was really sick for the first about 18 months of his life. So we spent a lot of time in sick kids. But because I started going to alternative schools, I could work from the hospital. You know, I could work from home. I could, I had amazing teachers there who, again, I, I just, honestly, McKinney, I've been so fortunate with people I've met along my life in places that could have really destroyed me, but just instilled some type of belief. Not with mm-hmm. saying like, not that cheerleading, like you can do it. You know what I mean? But it was mm-hmm. like, you're going to do it. 
and you're going to make it happen. And I didn't end up graduating high school. I was shy of two credits. So stupid. <laughs> it was going to take me a year in night school to, you know, figure that out. But uh, again, I was really fortunate to go to what they had. It was like a co-op program. Mm-hmm. And I was 17 at the time. So my son would have been about two and a half. Um, and I landed a co-op placement at the courts. And I worked a lot, a lot in traffic court with, or, you know, volunteered, whatever, mm-hmm. um, in traffic court and, you know, different pieces of criminal records and, and really learning a lot about that system. And again, super fortunate. They hired me the day I turned 18. And I worked there for several years, but I ended up clerking. So if you can picture like black gown sitting in front of the judge, mm-hmm. <laughs> or I guess it's not a gown robe, whatever. <laughs> and I was listening to these stories and uh, I, one of the courts I was placed at, they had specific courts for like drinking and driving. Those were the most boring courts, I promise you. <laughs> I mean, the whole drinking and driving is awful. Don't get me wrong. But like mm-hmm. listening to three hours of testimony of a breathalyzer is, you know, enough to make you not want to work there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but then another court I worked a lot in was the domestic violence court. And I remember sitting and listen, and I had this man on my docket all the freaking time. And it was so frustrating when I would see him because I'm like, he's done it again. And mm. every time this, this woman would get up on the stand, she recanted, which is so common, right? And I remember still being super young with not a whole lot of, even though I'd seen a lot more life than a lot of, you know, 21-year-olds at the time, I couldn't fathom how this was happening and why I couldn't do something to help. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're sitting there being like, no, God damn it. Like, you know, <laughs> and at the last time I had him on my docket, he was on for murder and he wow. ended up taking her life. And I quit two days later because wow. I knew that there was no way that I, even though I couldn't have helped, like it necessarily wouldn't have mattered where I was, you know, in the court system, mm-hmm. but just the fact that we could sit there and not help more was and I believe everybody to some degree was doing everything they could. And, you know, unfortunately she didn't have access to some of the resources that we now know are available mm-hmm. um, or for whatever reason, right? Everyone walks a different path when it comes to that. Yeah. And it didn't mean I could fix that, but I felt part of it. You know, I felt part of not being able to help her. So mm-hmm. oh, I still get like emotional thinking, oh, I hope he's like rots in there. So anyways, <laughs> I left and I thought, oh, let me go be a paralegal for a while. And that was a horrible idea. <laughs> and I remember sitting in a paralegal office and I just thought, I want to work with people that most of the world doesn't want to work with. Mm-hmm. And I believe at one point I was one of those people, you know, as a young mom who knew everything and big chip on my shoulder because I always felt like I had something to prove. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started applying to just all kinds of residential group homes and I started working in the field at um, 23 and that's where I spent 15 years. Wow. And yeah, so I know that was like a really long winded of where I started <laughs> and how I got here today. But I think every piece of what I went through brought me to that, you know, whether that sounds, I don't know, woo woo or not. I think without those experiences, I don't know that I would have ended up in a social work career. I wouldn't have been a marine biologist, but I don't know that I would have ended up in a social work career. Right. So. Wow. I'm just thinking about your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions from such a young age. 
everyone's born into a particular set of circumstances and our values are defined by what we experience. And you said, you know, you grew up in a, a middle-class home. Um, you know, some people grow up in luxury and, you know, have this sense of entitlement and still end up, you know, acting out or doing certain things. And then there's people who, you know, grow up in poverty, but, you know, manage to make the most out of their situation. But wh- whatever our the situation or circumstances that we're born into, it affects our paradigms, our habitual way of thinking. How do you feel growing up in a middle-class home, both your parents, like you, you know, you have them now, like, how do you think that affected who you've become today? Um, In a lot of ways, I kind of look back and think like, how dare I? Mm. Like there's almost this sense of guilt in some ways as far as why would I, you know, they did everything they could for me. Mm-hmm. I never wanted for anything. You know, I wanted a, a Game Boy, I got a Game Boy. I wanted a Walkman when it came out, I got a Walkman. And it's not just about the monetary things, but they were there. They were, you know, in the home. And I look back and I think like, how dare I do that to them? Mm-hmm. At the same time, my parents are complete opposites. <laughs> But there's one thing that's always very, you know, a common thread with them is their loyalty um, Mm -hmm. and unconditional love. And again, I may not have appreciated that as a teenager, which is why I kind of look back like, how dare I? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's always just stuck with me. And I'm, it's allowed me to be a lot more grateful for that. Right. And also look at ways that I want to show those things versus just kind of knowing it's there. Mm-hmm. You know, like I want to remind people, myself, you know, my friends or whomever that I really appreciate you mm-hmm. and, you know, you're going to do big things or whatever. And I think a part of that was missing, which may have caused the rebellion, <laughs> may not realize <laughs> it at the time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how well that answers your question, but I think more than anything is that, again, I've been really fortunate with people that I've met in all walks of life and all parts of my journey and story and what have you that just instilled this belief without again saying like, I believe in you. Right. And it's just really, you know, caused me now to just love people's stories. You know, I could sit and talk about people's stories all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, really like, you know, my whole, everything I do now is about using your voice to make an impact. How can you use your voice to affect change? Yeah. You know, how can you use your voice to better people's lives? So I believe all of that comes from, those situations without them overtly saying it. Okay. So without overtly having that being said to you, like, okay, so Mm -hmm. our parents and caregivers are, they're often our loudest fans or critics. So though we might rebel in our teenage years, we are generally compelled to like, please and imitate those authority figures. And you know, your mom leaving notes on your door, which is like the the, the stats about teen moms, the reverse affirmations, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you not physically hearing um, the words you needed to hear. Where did you receive praise from? Oh, you know, McKinney, I don't know that I did. Wow. And I think that that was part of the rebellion mm-hmm. with like, you know, the people that I started spending time with and, you know, looking for that not love. I never necessarily felt unloved, mm-hmm. but looking for someone that was just going to be like, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a lot of where that rebellion came from. And, you know, I still feel in a lot of ways, even though I had immense support after my son was born, it was still that, you know, you're kind of like head down. I need to make this work. 
Right. So maybe that was there, but I was, I had blinders on. Right. It was like this chip on my shoulder and I'm going to make it work mm-hmm. and watch me do it. So I don't necessarily know that I, and I, it's funny, like it almost sounds ugly when I say it, but I, I don't know that I heard that at all. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. I'm like, okay, where do I want to take this? There's I know. And it's so funny. Because I don't feel like, I don't look back and think like, how dare them? Right. Because they had their way of showing it. Right. You know, they had their way of doing things and, and their way of showing love was just different. Right. You know, we weren't affectionate. We weren't those things. And I don't know if there's there was just that peace in me. Maybe it was hormones. Who knows? But I'm like... <laughs> I'm looking for it somewhere. Right. And, you know, there's that gratification that you get from people, you know, maybe not the smartest friends, <laughs> maybe some of those toxic friends I made along the way, mm-hmm. but it was a sense of belonging. You know, right. you felt important. You felt, you know, I don't know. It's, and, you know, I love my parents and I, I always sound like, I always feel like, oh my gosh, I'm throwing them under the bus, but I'm not. No, like, you sound It was grateful there, but parents. I didn't. Okay, good. <laughs> So I always feel like, you know, I don't ever like, it's crazy because I am, I'm so grateful. And, you know, would things have been different if they were a little bit, you know, more forthcoming with stuff? Maybe, but that's not who they are. So it so. makes me think about the, the five love languages, right? Because whether it be in a relationship or with our parents or like any type of connection we have, you know, I've, I've even made my kids do the test so I can understand them better because sometimes the way that we need to be loved is not the way that we're being loved. And the person that is loving on us is loving on us in the way that they feel they should do it, not how you need it. So it sounds as though, you know, the physical touch and the words of affirmation were just not your parents' style. It could could have been the acts of service or the gifts. So their style, although it was their way of showing love, may not have necessarily been the way that you needed. You needed the words of affirmation, maybe. Yeah, 100%. I love the love languages. I love that you said you do that with your kids because yeah, (laughs) it is. It's so important because the love languages aren't selfish, you know, and they're selfless, right? So it's what you can do for other people. So I love that you said that. I think it's, it's a, it's a mix of, like you said, being selfless, but also self-awareness, because if you understand what your needs are, then you can better communicate them. And then those needs can easier be met than expecting people to be mind readers. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. And as a teenager, you're not saying, hi, my love language is words of affirmation. So can you tell me them? Yeah. 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 Totally, totally get it. Totally get it. Okay. So I want to touch on the part of your story because you experienced unexpected medical challenges. You basically had a short period of time where you found yourself paralyzed. Can you... Yeah. Share that story and how that affected you mentally, emotionally, physically. Yeah, that's a big one. I guess it was like the, so, you know, along my, I don't want to be a paralegal. Now I'm going to do this. And, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, I want to be an insurance agent. Like, what the hell? It's like (laughs) totally chasing money, right? Not chasing purpose at all. And I was in insurance school. Like I wasn't even an insurance agent yet. And we were about an hour and change away from the city. Like they put you up in a hotel. It sounds like a nice gig, right? Mm-hmm. And my back was so sore. Not even so much my back. It was like my legs. So it was like the shooting, like probably the worst. It was actually probably worse than child labor. 
and I didn't have an easy child. Like, like it, wow. the pain was awful. I couldn't sit. So I was standing everywhere or like laying on floors, like hotel floors, who does that? And I'm like this, like, I can't, I got to go to the hospital. And I thought, I said to my girlfriend who was with me at the time, I said, just drop me off. I tell a different story that she doesn't love because, you know, we'll share that one too, just because we like doing that. Um, I said, drop me off at emergency. They're probably just going to give me a pain shot. And, you know, I'll just call you to come back and pick me up. Mm-hmm. So the story I like to tell is we rolled to emergency. She didn't even stop and, you know, push me out the door. So she didn't <laughs> really do that, though. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I literally walked into emergency that morning. And within about 30 minutes, I was completely paralyzed from the waist down. So I lost use of, you know, all of the organs that are there. So you can imagine how, you know, pun intended, messy that can be. Mm-hmm. And I was just in like the most incredible. It's so crazy because it's like I couldn't feel anything except pain. Wow. So it was like I couldn't feel my legs when I touched them. I couldn't move them like legit paralysis. And then all of a sudden everything started happening very quickly. And I don't have a lot of memory of that time because then the pain drugs were crazy. It was like all the things, right? And I remember waking up because obviously I (laughs) I wasn't very alert in this moment. I remember waking up and I could hear my friend who had dropped me off at at the emergency yelling. I don't know if it was her voice that, you know, startled me and woke me up, but I guess I was signing consents of things which I shouldn't have been signing. Right. And she was like losing her mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, here I am in this like old hospital, everything's concrete. So my phone wasn't working. That's why she, you know, came in like a, an Avenger. And <laughs> cause I wasn't answering anything. And in any event, I, they said they can't, oh, the whole thing, it was like, okay, we're going to send you to this trauma hospital. And it was like, nope. They won't take you. Going to send you to this trauma hospital. No, they won't take you. And everyone, everyone, the neurosurgeon's concern was that they needed to get the pain under control because with that amount of pain, there's so much inflammation. And what we learned was I had a disc. Well, everyone has discs. <laughs> One of the discs in my back broke. Oh wow! Um, and lodged itself behind my spinal cord. Wow. So that's what caused that immediate. And it was probably from all the movement I was trying to do to get comfortable initially. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I had just quit social work seven days before. Wow. So I would say this is like the universe saying, girl, you are not meant to be an assurance agent. I'm going to give you like the worst lesson possible. And so I ended up staying at that hospital for a few days, just trying again, just pain management. Um, And then I was transferred to another hospital where I was laying in the bed and this neurosurgeon came. They all kind of look the same, right? Like, no disrespect to neurosurgeons, but they all kind of have this look about them. Um, But he was so kind and compassionate and he was holding my hand and he said, you know, we're going to operate because we need to get the disc out. Um, But there's a 50-50 chance that you'll walk again. And I remember just like, I'm already a crier, but I'm like really (laughs) losing it now. And I'm looking at my, my girlfriend who's there and she's like, don't look at me. Like I'm not making this decision for you. (laughs) And I wasn't trying to put it on her, but you know, and he said, let's call your mom. And I was like, okay. 
And I, you know, this is my mom. I get on the phone and I, he explains what's happening. So I get on the phone and I'm, you know, sobbing. And she says, um, if you don't do the surgery, will you walk again? And I was like, uh, no, probably not. She's like, well, what are your odds then? And that was it. I signed the paper, but that's just her. She's just matter of fact, like here it is in your face, <laughs> black and white. There's no gray with her. And I signed it and they said at some point in the night, they will come and take me. And I was wheeled into an emer- into an operating room around three in the morning. And why that's so like, Im- I guess, important as far as the story is I'd never been through a hospital in the dark like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was dark. It was quiet. Like you're so used to that, like hustle and bustle. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting into the operating room. And because they're operating on your back, they have to flip you over. And I could see the the surgeon like doing his scrubbing or whatever. And they're getting ready to move me. And he comes flying into the operating room and he's like, don't move her until she's asleep. Right now we're keeping her comfortable. And that was kind of the last thing I remember in the operating room because then, and it just, but that's where I'm just saying like, I've been so fortunate to the people that I've crossed paths with (sighs) that they just have this way of showing this compassion without, you know, again, being like, it's going to be okay, girl. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, But the surgery, I don't know, it was long and I woke up in recovery and he was there. Oh my gosh. Best surgeon ever. He was there (laughs) and he's like, wiggle your toes. And they wiggled. And it was like this, like, I don't know. (laughs) It was just, it was incredible. It was so incredible. And then it was like, oh my gosh, I am in the worst pain ever. (laughs) So I spent several weeks at the spine unit. Um, I had to learn to walk again. Wow. um, Just because, you know, all the nerve damage, it's like this disconnect between your nerves are kind of cool, right? Like Mm -hmm. your brain is the one telling your legs to move. So it's like just... I don't know what you call it, but like refining that connection again. But McKinney, that wasn't even the hardest part. The hardest part was going home and, you know, recovery. I had an amazing nurse who came in, Nick, shout out to Nick Nurse. And he, again, was so compassionate. And, but I found myself reaching for the pain medication when I maybe didn't need it Mm -hmm. because it was there and it had become so habitual, right? Like mm-hmm. in the hospital, it's like, push the button, <laughs> like get more mm-hmm. pain drugs. And I found myself laying in bed and just reaching for them and taking them. And, you know, they weren't light drugs. I wasn't reaching for Tylenol, I promise. Mm-hmm. And I just all of a sudden was like, what the hell am I doing? Like, get off your freaking pity party mm-hmm. and stop this. And I should never have quit cold turkey. <laughs> with withdrawal is a real thing. Mm -hmm. I had a very new appreciation for people that I had worked with in social work who were battling addictions and just thought this is so awful. And, you know, I remember that Nick coming in and he was like, what the hell have you done? Because I was just a mess. Mm -hmm. And he picked my not small body up and he was a very short man (laughs) and put me in the shower and says, we're going to get through this together. And that was really the beginning of the healing because although it was like healing from that physical stuff and learning to walk and all of those things, going through that was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to keep muting myself as you were telling your story because I've known you for how long and I've known parts of the story, but to hear you tell it 
I could not stop crying. <laughs> so, uh, I'm like, I'm sorry. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's oh. it's crazy, and I I know sometimes I kind of brush over it. The appreciation that I learned through that was unreal. You know, mm-hmm. just a new appreciation for people, a new appreciation for life, a new appreciation of stop chasing money and start chasing your purpose. And that's how I, you know, found myself in ghostwriting. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to talk about it and it's another thing to do it. And I was doing way too much talking, <laughs> like just <laughs> way too much talking. Um, but it was, it was probably the hardest thing that I've, that I've ever gone through ever. I am so sorry you had to experience that. And I always say this, like, God has a very interesting sense of humor. And sometimes I'm like, that's not funny. But like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you having to go through all those hardships, but at the same time, it taught you an appreciation and gave you a level of gratitude that you may not have had prior to. And 100%. Yeah, I I don't feel like, you know, we need to be temporary paralyzed to learn anything. Um, but, But, but. You know, listening to your story and, you know, also knowing the friend that was there for you during that time in the hospital and knowing her personality. And uh-huh. it, it's like, I, I now see how close you guys are as friends. So when you look at all of those times, whether it be from when you were younger, even up until now, there has always been someone there for you. And like you said, they may not be saying it vocally, but there is always someone there for you showing you that they are going to walk through it with you, that you're not alone, that it's going to be okay. Yeah. And sometimes we don't see those people. Mm -hmm. More often than not, we don't see those people until after the fact. Yeah. And I think that's where now I'm just so much more present and intentional in the things that I do because I want to see those people and thank those people before it's too late. And too late being, you know, you lose contact. It doesn't need to be something catastrophic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just... Yeah, I would never have had this, this, like you said, level of gratitude. And just to kind of add to that, I had, someone had sent me the book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, which to this day I say is like the best book. (laughs) But the first, but the first time I read it, I was like, okay, this is kind of dumb. Like, why is there a squiggly in the book? Why does it want me to think about stuff? Like, (laughs) I just kind of read it. It was like a cover to cover read. And I was like, oh yeah, hey, that's cool. But I reread it when I was going through the withdrawal and greatest book ever. (laughs) So that's why I feel like that book is kind of like people that were in my life. Like, you know, you, you experience things with them, you have conversations, whatever. And then you don't, it's in my brain. It's not coming out the right way, (laughs) but we don't always appreciate what we have because we're not ready to see it. You know, it's the whole, like, not to be cliche, but like the teacher appears when the student is ready, but it's, I think it's so true. And that's why I just, you know, again, I've become a lot more intentional with the things that I do and, you know, where I spend my time and making sure people around me know that I appreciate them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, well, I've, I've read the power of now. Um, I actually, I may have borrowed it from your house, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where it went. (laughs) No, I don't still have it. I brought it back. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) But but I definitely read it. uh, So I can agree with you. uh, The lessons in there, you know, about appreciating what's in front of you right now. Like we have no control. Like we can no longer control what happened in our past. And 
we have limited control about what happens in our future, but we can control how we feel right now in this very moment. Like, you know, just a beautiful visual, an example. We are both right now recording this episode from our cars because, (laughs) you know, because we live in nice homes, but, you know, there's stuff happening, right? Mm -hmm. Where we can't control what's going on there. We are controlling what we can and we are presently just being in the moment. Like I'm totally engulfed into listening to your story until I'm like wiping tears away and trying not to sniffle all up in the mic. (laughs) (laughs) But it's totally appreciating the now, like right now in this very moment, at this very second, like my level of appreciation, not only for my connection to you, but in even just a lesson that you just shared in your story, because life happens and not everyone looks at life when shit gets hard and is like, okay, well, let me stop being sorry for myself. Let me do this. Let me do that. And not everyone may have that sense of community around them to support them and and have that friend to say, you know, I got you. We're going to go through this together. But listening to your story, there's so many points in there that we can pull from the next time that we're going through our own adversity, whether it be reaching out to someone to say that I, I need someone there as part of my support community, or whether it be, you know, finding the tools through books or podcasts or what have you to, to keep your mind in that space. But I don't know, I, I feel like this is why I love doing this podcast so much. And every time I think about taking a break, I'm like, no, it's like therapy to me. Uh, selfishly, yeah. it is therapy to me. And I know based on the feedback and the DMs that I get that it's helpful for the women that are listening because there's never been a time where they're, they've heard someone's story and not had something from it that they could apply to their own lives. So like, thank you for your transparency. Well, thank you for receiving it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. I love that people reach out to you and let you know that too, because in a lot of ways, you know, it's such, it's so, I don't know, affirming, confirming, whatever, Mm -hmm. that they are receiving it and they're letting you know. And, you know, you said something interesting about, you know, sometimes we have to reach out to that community or we need to, you know, what have you. But I think that, you know, social media can be such a horrible thing, but I think it can be such an amazing thing too, because it doesn't mean we can't reach out to someone that we just happen to be connected to. A lot of times we don't even know how. Right. And just say, you know what, I I love what you're doing. Like, and just leave it at that. Because we never know when that person, if that person replies, and not in like a creepy DM kind of way, but <laughs> we never know if they're going to reply and be like, you don't know how much I needed your message today. Right. You know, and, and I think about a lot of that, like how you said, when you think about, you know, taking a break or what have you, I feel that same way with the morning posts I do every single day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're tongue in cheek, sometimes they're motivating, sometimes they're whatever. And the messages, you know, you kind of get back or like, you don't know how much I needed this today, mm-hmm. whether it be a laugh or just something. Right. And I just think that, we become so much more present and we can all make that happen for somebody. We we're probably already that person for somebody. Absolutely. I agree with that a thousand percent. I strongly believe that social media is not only what you make of it, but also what you put into it because it it can be 
a very negative, toxic place, but it can also be a beautiful place and source of light and inspiration and community. And I've experienced both sides. So I agree with you with even the simple things like sending a DM to let someone know that they inspire you. Because I can't tell you how much that means to me when a complete stranger that I had no idea existed sends me a message and lets me know that they use my page to inspire them while they're going through chemo or you know they listen to a podcast episode and it helped them leave a toxic relationship like those things don't need to be shared publicly but me hearing them privately it keeps me going for the days yeah. where I'm like why am I doing this again like is anybody listening does anybody care <laughs> it's, yep. yeah it's so helpful. I love that you know there's there's also what you said about you mentioned a point I think it was related to what I said about reaching out sometimes and I have different circles since I was younger of different circles of friends that never intertwine. And I enjoy each of them for different reasons. But I found being an entrepreneur and the more that I grew within my business, sometimes there were things that I felt they wouldn't understand if I shared with them. And I had another woman that I was following that I was totally inspired by and a couple of years ago when I was going through some stuff and I was having a really challenging time and I thought, you know, on one hand, there are people that are messaging that look up to what I'm doing and some people that I, I know, but if I were to message them, they'd be like, oh, but, you know, life is great. You should have nothing, you know, to complain about. And then on the mm-hmm. flip side, it's so it's like people have this perception of you or of your life and you feel like you can't transparently go to them for the support that you need. And I reached out to this woman and we became super close after that because it was like, we're both building motivational brands online. And I think at the time we hadn't met in person yet, but it was basically crying on the shoulder of someone who I knew would understand. It's like people look up to you and everyone's coming to you for advice, but where do you go when you need that? Yeah. Yeah. So important. And you're right. It's those different circles and and people that will or will not understand and also knowing the role that those people play in your life. And again, not to, you know, categorize everybody, but yeah, there's definitely people I would never reach out to, to say, you know, some of the stories that, you know, books that I've written for clients are, you know, similar to with you, like they're heart wrenching Mm -hmm. and you need that debriefing person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You need that person that you can just kind of unload on. And like you said, lean on each other and then you keep it moving for everybody else. But I think we we do lose sight of being human, Mm -hmm. you know, is that we're allowed to be human. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) I I put up a post on Instagram just the other day about, you know, human beings being human. And I had to put a reminder in my story today because I made a story yesterday about how People love to create their own stories or narratives about someone's life based on the snippets of their life that they share on social media. And this person DM'd me and I love hearing different perspectives. I love having a conversation. I I love to keep an open mind. So I don't want to be, you know, surrounded by a bunch of people that think exactly the same as me because then it wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't challenge me. But she was like, well, isn't it being fake that all of these coaches and influencers are online posting, you know, this happy life when they're going through difficulty? Maybe instead of telling the public not to judge them, we should tell that, like, basically telling the influencers to, I guess, share more about their difficulties. 
So I just said, I can't speak for other influencers or coaches. I can only speak for myself. And anyone who follows me knows that I share the ups and downs. I share the adversities and I share the highlights. But at the same time, I am a human being being human. I'm entitled to privacy. I'm entitled to not sharing my open wounds as I'm going through them and letting the whole world judge and also sometimes even in a positive way where they want to share their story of hurt or grief or breakup or whatever when I'm not in a place emotionally with the capacity to receive it, to be able to have the compassion for their own stories. So I I feel like with social media, healed ears, (laughs) I say this, healed ears hear differently. And I think that when you are in a place of hurt, even what you see on social media can either trigger you or bring out your own insecurities. So at the end of the day, we should all just be mindful of what we say and what we interpret of other people's lives online, because we don't know what someone else is going through. Like, I've known you for how long I knew the story of what you were experiencing. But to hear it in detail from your own words, like my, my, my heart was like, Oh, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, while you were going through it, I may not have even understood the level of what you were going through, right? Like sometimes people know us, but they have no idea the depth of what it is that we're dealing with privately. Yeah. And my, you know, I, I love your response. And my whole thing is, you know, people are always going to create a narrative of us, narrative of us, whatever that may be. Um, And I love a lot of the work you do about, you know, owning your story and owning who you are and stepping into your power and all of those things, because it's our narrative that matters. And Mm -hmm. if we share it all, you're right. A hundred percent, we are entitled to privacy and people lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. But what difference would it make in someone's life if they knew like the depth of what we were going through? It would make no difference. Right. So it's like what we choose to share and what we choose to put out there, whether it be, you know, inspirational or adversities or whatever, is that we're doing it with the intention that someone's going to relate and resonate with this and it's going to help them in some way. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, that's it's very similar to, you know, one of the things I really work on and what my Forbes article about was, you know, when we're putting content out there, we're seeking empathy, we're not seeking sympathy. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of nice to be like, oh, I'm really sorry you went through that, but okay. <laughs> now mm-hmm. what? Like, mm-hmm. let's do something with it. What can you yep. take away from what I'm sharing with you? And I think that, you know, with people responding to you that way about, you know, putting X, Y, and Z out there, it's like, okay, but for what? Right. Like, that's, you just want an insight of my life? I give you enough insight of my life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tune into my stories every day. You'd see what's happening. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, you know, I do think I love that that was your response. And, you know, there's always going to be those people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, social media can be a great place. It can also be a really, you know, toxic place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it comes to us choosing like what we consume. You know, it's not just so much what we put out, but what we consume. Agreed. And being present helps that. Like, oh, no, this post, Mm -mm. you're not my people. Unfollow. Right. (laughs) Like, why do we keep giving people the benefit of the doubt all the time? You know, it's not going to get better tomorrow. It's going to be the same crap and you're going to still scroll on by. You're still consuming it. And all of that stuff, we don't realize how much stuff houses in our subconscious about things, good, bad, or indifferent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just think that, you know, if we use people 
you know, use people's content, not use in an ugly way, let's not get crazy, but, you know, use people's content to, to add value to our life in some way, then that's what matters. Yes. So tell her she can kick stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to use it as a teachable moment because I'm, I'm open to different perspectives. I feel taught. I feel taught right now. <laughs> you know what? So, okay. The reason I, I decided to use that as a, as a teachable moment is because, so I interviewed Sonia Zabertani and uh, we were talking yesterday about being triggered when someone posts something. And she was triggered by her friend posting that people who use filters are fake. And it triggered her because she uses filters. Okay. <laughs> so rather than her be upset with her friend or be offended by her friend's perspective, she opened it up to a, a conversation in her stories. So in doing that, not only did it open up her mind to the different perspectives that people have of filters, but it also she was able to share with people like one as a coach and like influencer and you know online personality that doesn't always feel like wearing makeup or whatever and she's like but does that change anything else about who I am if you still hire me or you still read my books or you still whatever does the fact that I use a filter change any of that so we were just talking about what really matters like who cares <laughs> right yep. um so that inspired me today to dig deeper into that perspective that came into my dms because I thought Obviously, again, with social media, everyone has their own perspective and you will get the good and the bad. And that is why I'm very intentional about who I follow online because it affects my mental health. I don't mm -hmm. like you know, I don't care if you're family. I don't care if you're a friend. If your entire feed is negative, I unfollow you. I still love you in real life. I just don't need to follow you on social media. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 No, I love that. Uh, speaking of social media. Before we go to the final segment of the show, I want you to tell people where they can stay connected with you to learn more from you and about you. Uh, believe it or not, I'm still an avid Facebook user. <laughs> Instagram and I, you know, we play in stories a little bit, um, but Facebook is probably um, the best way to, to stay connected. Um, awesome. And it's just, you know, it's easy when you have a unique spelling last name. I'm pretty easy to find, um, but that would probably be the best way to stay connected for sure. Okay. So I will definitely have the links to your website and your socials in the uh, detailed section of the podcast so they can just click and connect with you directly. They don't have to search too far. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. So for the final segment of the show, it's more or less like a, a rapid fire. You already know huh. as a person, so you know that I don't like rules. So sometimes it's not so rapid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah <laughs> this is the, portion of the show where you know i ask you quick questions and you can choose to share whether one word or one sentence or if you want to unpack go right ahead there's no punishment for that here <laughs> but it's uh, tips to help other women along their journey for sure all right so let's start with when and where are you the happiest where there's palm trees <laughs> i feel you <laughs> I feel you a thousand percent. <laughs> so I have one tattooed on my arm. I love palm trees. Uh, okay. Describe yourself in one word. <laughs> Ooh, that's a big one. <laughs> um, describe myself in one word. Jeez, like me? Pass? No. <laughs> um, probably really introspective. I love it. I love it. Okay. When was the last time you cried? This morning. 
Okay. In the shower. It's just my place of reflection and it feels good to cry in the shower. And I'm a big believer in healthy crying. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And I've, I've heard that from a lot of people that they choose to cry in the shower. Yeah. I don't know if it's, I mean, I definitely have privacy in the shower, Um, (laughs) but there's just something about it. Like, now I'm just going to describe my shower for you this morning, but it's like, you know, you have the shower just on your face and, you know, most of the crying in there, especially like my morning shower is more mm-hmm. from just grateful. I'm a crier, period. Like I mm-hmm. still cry watching commercials. Like I'm ridiculous actually, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> there's something very just great about it in the shower and you come out and you're like, really fresh now, you know, mm-hmm. all cried out the whole thing. Yeah. In the shower. Yep. What's the, the first thing you do when you wake up? Put on the coffee. Okay. What's the last thing you do at night before you go to bed? I don't know. I mean, one thing I, I have a habit of every single night, I write down 10 things I'm grateful for in that day. Mm-hmm. Um, because really, before I have my coffee, I read those 10 things from the night before. That was just something I started when I was going through a lot of that healing. But other than that, you know, I usually watch some dumb TV show and maybe turn it off. <laughs> Nothing really magical, you know, it's when I happen to close my eyes, but. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Last but not least, if you could create one law that everyone, everyone in the world had to follow, what would that be? Be the light for somebody mm. in some way, just making a point every single day. And it doesn't need to be anything elaborate, but it. just something. Yeah be that somebody I love it I love it I love it and honestly now I feel like I am going to make more of a conscious effort to message you and let you know that I see you and keep going because I think that those words are very important and I just want to thank you for your transparency and your authenticity and for taking the time to share your energy with me today thank you for having me I really appreciate (laughs) it a lot thank you and to all of you healers out there until next time subscribe on all platforms don't forget to rate the show on apple podcast and leave us a review we love hearing what resonates with you and thanks to those of you that continue to listen each week so the globe the show can rank globally in the top 1.5 percent of most popular shows and that's out of almost 3 million podcasts if you could think of i'm going to challenge you today to five women that would receive value from hearing Catherine's story please share it with them you know feel free to screenshot this week's episode and let us know what your aha moment was like what was what was your takeaways from this episode you can tag myself at the real mckinney smith you can tag Catherine at Catherine nickel you can also tag us on facebook <laughs> and uh <laughs> the, a healthy community is a healing community and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather survive and thrive so let's continue to heal her